Uh, I don't know about you, if you feel the same way, or if you've seen some of the things that I've been seeing if you go online, but I've been very struck by the new element of social media in the recent attacks on Israel, and then the social media posts that you see if you're watching what's transpiring in the Gaza Strip right now. Each side's been communicating in, like, actual real time, right, the horrible global events that befall them. And it's like you can just watch along live when a missile shoots across the sky and hits a building and it explodes. I've seen many of these in recent days. I don't know if you have either. You know, it used to be that the news arrived several days or maybe even a week later by newspaper a generation or two ago. And then with CNN, I guess, or Fox News, you know, cable news, maybe later that day or, late, or that night you would catch the news. But now people are live streaming. They're live texting these events that transpire. And you can watch along right with them, all the things. And some of these things are quite horrible. I have an example of one. Johnny Tov, along with his wife Tamar Tov, were aged 35 and 36. They had three children, six-year-old twins Shahar and Arbel, and they had a four-year-old son, Omer. And with them was his mother, Carla, and she was 70. And they all were together when Hamas attacked. And so as they began to attack, the family of six went to their home in the kibbutz near Oz, the Gaza border. They went into their safe rooms when the rockets began to attack. But they texted their friends who got all of this kind of live as it was transpiring. And it started with, Hey, guys, we got into the shelter in our house. We're all going to be okay. Good. Fabulous. But then the text changed. Johnny texted his sister Renee in New York City as the events unfolded became more ominous. He says, they are here, said one of the texts. And it said, we are suffocating. And then finally it said, we are going to die. Renee and her other friends, you know, texted back and forth, sending prayers, sending communications, but none came. The family later learned that they were all gunned down in their safe house. At the same time, if you want to watch even today, yesterday, the few days over, you can watch people from the Gaza Strip say, here comes a missile. And it does, it blows up the building next to them, or it blows up a hospital, or a church. And you can watch that live. Or the tanks that are right below. It's the same thing. Live texted. Live streamed. To know that you're going to die is a very sobering and a very scary thing. And to hear that you have family members or loved ones that are going to die is equally horrible. But it happens. It happens in Israel, like I just described. It happens in the Gaza Strip, probably right at this exact moment. It happens to people all over the world, some people that you know. It's happened this week. And in regards to eventual death, it happens to all of us. Eventually, one day, who knows when, in the future. If you knew that you only had a few weeks to live... And you were given a chance to write a text or an email or even an old-fashioned letter to your family or your friends. What would you write? What would you say? There are actually many such letters available. 
They've been written over time. There's some very famous ones. I'm going to read one to you. It's very famous. It used to be read in schools across the United States. The Major Sullivan Ballou letter, it's called. Major Sullivan Ballou was a Civil War major, and he wrote his wife a letter just before dying on the plains of Manassas, Virginia, in the Battle of Matthews Hill, one of the first major battles of the Civil War. And you know how horrible that bill, that war is if you've been to Vicksburg or Gettysburg or even here to Matthews Hill. So he wrote this letter that's very famous, July 14, 1861. This is what clarifies in the mind of someone who thinks he's going to die. What did he write about? What did he say? My very dear wife, indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. Lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. If it's necessary that I should fall on the battlefield for any country, I am ready. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not falter or halt. I know how strongly American civilization now leans upon the triumph of government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and sufferings of the revolution. And I'm willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. I cannot describe to you my feelings on this calm summer night when 2,000 men are sleeping around me, many of them enjoying their last, perhaps, before that of death, and I suspicion that death is creeping behind me with its fatal dart, and I communing with God, my country, and with thee. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. The memories of all the blissful moments I have spent with you come crowding over me. I feel most grateful deeply to God and you that I've enjoyed them so long and how hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years. When God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and seen our boys grow up to honorable manhood around us. I know I have but few claims upon divine providence, but something whispers to me, perhaps as the wafting prayer of my little Edgar, that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you, nor that with my last breath escapes me on the battlefield. It will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and many pains I have caused you. How thoughtless, how foolish I have oftentimes been. How gladly would I wash out my tears, every little spot upon your happiness, and struggle with all the misfortunes of this world to shield you and the children from harm. But, O Sarah, if the dead could come back to earth and flit unseen around those they love, I shall always be near you in the garish day and the darkest night. Amidst your happiest scenes and your gloomiest hours away, always, and if the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath. Or the air cools your throbbing temples, it shall be my spirit passing through. Sarah, do not mourn, my dear. Think I am gone, and wait for me, for we shall meet again. As for my little boys, they will grow as I have done, and never have a father's love and care. Little Willie's too young to remember me long, and my blue-eyed Edgar will keep my frolics with him among the most dimmest memories of his childhood. Sarah, I have unlimited confidence in your maternal care 
in your development of their characters. Tell my two mothers, I call God's blessing upon them, O Sarah. I wait for you over there. Come to me and lead thither my children. In deepest love, Sullivan. One's mortality has a way of putting things in focus. Staring at death put Major Blue's life into clear focus about what was important to him. You just heard it. I don't want to synthesize his message, but he seemed to be saying three things. Love for family and spouse, devotion to a cause greater oneself, and wishing that he had done more of those first two things. Imminent death brings clarity to the pedestrian cacophony that usually consumes our thoughts. How will I pay the bills? How can I get more money? When will I be able to take that dream vacation? Will the Cowboys ever win the Super Bowl? How will I ever lose weight? What's wrong with Joe Biden? What's wrong with Donald Trump? Will my car break down before I can afford a new one? What will I have for dinner tonight? How rich is Taylor Swift? Why are we talking so much about Taylor Swift? Why did Netflix get rid of password sharing? I hope they pick a good fee site next year. Will God heal me? Why can't I get a date? Why doesn't my boyfriend do what I want? I hope Medicare covers Ozempic. When will my children call? And is he ever going to stop reading that list? <laughs> Major Sullivan Blue was able to focus clearly on the three most important concerns of his when the end seemed imminent. He focused on love of family, a cause greater than himself, and not putting off those first two things. His thoughts actually comport quite well with scripture. Did you know that there is a letter in the book, Bible and written by someone who was within a few weeks of dying and that he knew it? And it was a letter just like Major Belue's, but you've read it many times. Where is that? What is that? Let's look this afternoon at the last biblical instructions from the hand of the Apostle Paul and his second letter addressed to Timothy. A moving letter written to a young man who was like a son to Paul. These important words were at the end of his life, and they had a powerful meaning for Timothy, and they should have a powerful meaning for us too. Let's look at them. Some background. You can turn to 1 Timothy while I get started. The background to Timothy is the Middle East, and like today, it was a time of unrest. In 64 AD, the Roman Emperor Nero, probably, had burned sections of Rome, and he blamed it on the Christians. Imperial persecution hunted those down who followed the Christian way of life, and no doubt such renowned figures as Paul, who was well-known, who was famous, was therefore being closely watched and monitored. And like the envious Jews of Thessalonica, it seemed the Roman leadership also felt that the Christianity, the Christianity that Paul taught had turned the world upside down. That's that phrase that's actually in the Bible. Turn to Acts, Acts 17, verse 6. What does it say in Acts 17, verse 6, about this time and what the people thought of it? and about what was going on with Christianity, and what this crazy guy Paul was saying and doing. It says in Acts 17, verse 6, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down 
have come here too. And so in this upside-down world, Paul's teachings had, years before, 2 Timothy, already landed him in jail once. His first imprisonment in Rome had occurred a few years earlier, perhaps around 61 to 63 A.D., and it certainly wasn't pleasant to be in jail or detained, but it wasn't overly severe. It seems that he was under kind of house arrest, but he could receive visitors. He had access to the scriptures. If you look in Acts 28, skip forward a few chapters so we can get some context for what's going on in the life of Paul leading up to his writing of the second book of Timothy. So it says in Acts 28, verse 16, Now when he came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Skip down to verse 23. So when they appointed him a day, many came to him, Paul, at his lodgings, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till, till evening. And finally, another seven scriptures down, verse 30. Acts 28, verse 30. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Apparently, Paul was released from his first imprisonment and he continued his travels and his preaching. Since his later travels were mentioned in the Bible, we don't know exactly where or what, but we know he kept traveling. They're not in the book of Acts, but they allude to them. And so that's the backdrop to the first letter to Timothy. Imprisoned, Paul, yes. Monitored, yes. Unpleasant, probably. But he was seeing visitors, he was preaching, and he was instructing Timothy. But the years moved on, and Paul's fame spread. It grew And depraved Nero burned Rome, as I shared. And he blamed the Christians. So the very notable Paul was again put in prison, perhaps around 66 to 68 AD. This time he did not expect to be released. He did not expect it to be a walk in the park, an Airbnb. So the second letter of Timothy was probably written around 66, 67 AD. There's a book called The Life and Epistles of St. Paul by Housen, and it says that Paul probably died on May or June of 68 A.D. So this book, when it was written, was probably a true precursor to his last actual days. Therefore, in 2 Timothy, Timothy, we see the Apostle Paul writing a very intense and a very personal letter to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Paul was in trouble. He wasn't getting out of it. It appeared Paul's final imprisonment was much more severe than the first one. He was in bonds. He had few visitors. He felt that probably his death was imminent. So from his own words, live streaming, if you will, what did he say? Turn with me to 2 Timothy. We're going to go right to the middle to start. 2 Timothy 4. What was Paul's mindset as he wrote this letter to Timothy, his second one? in a much more severe environment. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me also, but to all who have loved his appearing. These are famous words. Many of you probably have some of these as memory scriptures. Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy, realizing that his personal end was nearing. Words that have been used by generations for Christians. Encouragement to what is important. Encouragement to keep the faith. Encouragement of a glorious reward. Not just for him and not just for Timothy, but all who follow God and are faithful. And he gave him some very specific instructions of what to do in this letter before he died. What do you do before the glorious final day? What do you do in your last days? Let's go back and look. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. We're going to start at the beginning. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, Paul considered Timothy not just a fellow worker in God's service, but someone who was like a son to him. And that's an important element that I'd like us to realize. This highlights one of the great benefits of God's calling, that we establish friendships in the faith that in some cases are more fulfilling than the ones we have with our own blood family. Peers in the faith who are like our mothers or our fathers, our brothers or our sisters, true friends for all seasons. We have a truth that few people know. We share a common bound, a common vision, common faith. Therefore, we should not be fickle or half-hearted. Be someone who's in it for the thick, but not for the thin. Doesn't bail on you when things go badly. One who shares the same path of Christian humility and repentance and growth. One who relishes God's law and his holy days and his teachings. One who sees the world for what it really is. One who has in their mind open to the truth, to the purpose and the destiny of human life. That can be someone that's closer to you than your own family members. Friendships like David and Jonathan, Paul and Timothy, Jesus and John, or hopefully your friends here in the faith. It's said that if in your lifetime you have three good friends, you are wealthy indeed. How many do you have? How many here today or or across our fellowship could fill that roster for you? Are we using our time during God's calling to build as many of these relationships as possible here in the faith? Are we building friendships that will last through our lives and into the family of God, what we believe to be forever? So it's easy. Be gregarious. Don't be a loner. Let's continue in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. Wherefore, I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God, which is in you by the laying on of hands. Acts 8, Acts 19, everyone who's in FI studying these things, Acts that tells us that God gives his Holy Spirit through the laying on of a minister's hands. We know that. So all of those who have been baptized have received this gift. But this gift must be constantly 
stirred up. And what does stirred up mean? Stir up is the Greek word anasapure, and it means to rekindle. Rekindle like when you go camping, you do a fire. And what happens when you have a fire? You have to tend it. You have to stir it. You have to watch it. You have to put more fuel onto it, else it burns down more and more. It turns to embers, and those embers eventually go out. And so that's the analogy of your calling and the Holy Spirit. You have to constantly stir it up. It must be attended. It must be stirred up through contact with God, through obedience to God's law, or it will wane. It will diminish, and it will turn to an ember, and then it will just be a whiff of smoke, and it will be out. So what does the Bible tell us to do? 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For the Spirit of God gave us not make us timid, but gave us power, love, and self-discipline. Christians are not to be scaredy cats. We're to be stirred up, to be active, to be bold, to be veritable ambassadors for Christ. You know what ambassador is like. God's Spirit gives us power, love, and sound minds. The actual words here are fear, deleia. It means timidity. Don't be timid. God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's not given us a spirit of timidity. Power is dunamis. It means miraculous strength, miraculous energy. Agape, love, the love of God. And the, la- and the sound mind, the last one there, is sonophronos. It means discipline or self-control. So we are not to be timid. We are to have miraculous strength. We are to love God. And we are to have self-control. That's what God gives us. At the end of his life, Paul's advice to Timothy is just right here. He wants us to constantly stir up the greatest of all gifts that God has given us. That is the Holy Spirit. Paul was stirred up 30 years earlier when he was going down the road to Damascus. Got struck, And look what he did. And he's trying to pass this on to a much younger person, to Timothy. Telling him to stir it up, to not neglect it, to grow it. So that the time is not unproductive. So that the time is not wasted. And the good news is that Paul's words clearly, we know, resonated with Timothy. We lose track of Timothy and where he actually goes, but records indicate that he preached all the way until his martyrdom in 90 AD. That would have been when he was 60 years old. So he did, in fact, for decades, continue to stir up and to practice God's way. So what about us? Do we stir the spirit up periodically, occasionally, Passover, holy days, or more frequently? How about every day? God wants our spirit to be like champagne. You know what it's like when they win, right? Super Bowl, right? F1 race. Shake that champagne up. And that effervescence pops the cork and it sprays all over the place. God wants your spirit in his, in his way to be like effervescence. And effervescence means to show the exhilaration of a lively spirit. Not to be a deadbeat or a scaredy cat, but to have a lively spirit. And that's exactly what our Christian calling should be like. Continue on. 2 Timothy 1 verse 13 pick up a second lesson that Paul wanted to teach uh, Timothy. So it says in uh, verse 13, 
It says, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Jesus Christ. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So besides stirring up the Holy Spirit, Paul instructs Timothy to guard the doctrine. And we all know how that to be critically necessary in recent decades in the church. And how is doctrinal integrity to be maintained? A great repository of online articles? Mr. Franks knows it very well. Mr. Burnett knows it very well. Is that how we're supposed to do it? Not just. How is it maintained? Turn to Acts 5 and verse 32. What is the missing element that most people in the world miss? It's this. Acts 5.32. God gives his spirit to those who obey him. We just heard about it in the first message. Be not just hearers of the word, but doers. Obey. By stirring up the Holy Spirit is God's spirit that produces and maintains doctrinal integrity and truth. The truth is maintained by people who live and practice the truth because they stir up God's spirit each and every day. It's present in your lives, front and center. You care about it. You focus on it. You do it. Sound like a Nike commercial. The most important thing we can do in our lifetime is strive to stir up the spirit of God in our minds so that we obey God and become fit ambassadors for Jesus Christ, representing and speaking today, now for the soon-coming kingdom of God. Prayer, fasting, Bible study, fellowship, meditation. I think we have a new book on that. Those are its five points. You can read it if you need to be reminded. If you can do this for a lifetime... Obey God, grow in grace and knowledge, do the right thing with family and friends and strangers, then at the end of your life you will have few regrets. Let's skip down to chapter 3 now. As we let 2 Timothy guide us in considering the most important things to us if we only had a short period of time. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. This know that in the last day, perilous times will come. What last days? The Bible can be interpreted several ways here, of course. The true actual last days, like whenever it is, the three months before, that would be the last days, right? Clearly, that's probably what most people think of first. But on another hand, we believe that mankind's been given 6,000 years apart from God. So when this verse was written, probably in the late 60s A.D., It was already in the last third of the time that mankind was given. If you go on a vacation to Hawaii and and it's the last Friday and Saturday of your week, you're like, I'm in the last part of the day of the vacation. So when he wrote this, 70% of the clock on mankind's time had already run off. He was in the last days. And ever since then, till now. However, there's another meaning to the term last days. And that is your and my own personal last days, whenever that will be. For everybody that's over 125 years old in the history of the world, that day has already come. And the rest of us are rushing towards it. 
Our last days come at different times for each of us. For some, it's near birth, or as a teen, or as an accident in our 20s or 30s, an illness in our 50s or 60s, or old age and infirmity in our later years. None of us know when the last day for us will be, right? But a lot of time has clicked off the clock for many of us. Let's relate the 6,000 years of mankind to, like, our personal story. If you just want to be able to think, like, he's trying to tell me about last days. Let me just relate to that. If we believe that Jesus Christ is returning, we sure hope that it's soon. Don't we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? And if you look in the Bible and you start to add up all the genealogies, you can get to 5,000 years and a couple hundred more pretty easily, right? So we hope that we're in the last days. But since we don't know when it is, what shall we say? Want to take a guess? Very dangerous. (laughs) But if I was to say 20 years, that would seem pretty fair, wouldn't it? It's not tomorrow. That would be a bad guess, probably. And we sure hope it's not 400 years. So why not just 20? It's a long time away, but not too long. 20 divided by 6,000, 0.33%. One-third of one percent of the time left, if you think it's in 20 years. And if you live out a normal life expectancy, let's just use 80 as a round number, right? 80 times 365 days. And I say you get that same 0.33%. That's 97 days. We don't know when Christ will return. We don't know when you will pass away. But if you want to know what some last days feels like, then pick 97 because it's just as good as any other. What would you do if you just had a couple months and a week to live? What would you tell your family, your friends, your loved ones? What could it mean for you? That's what we're talking about. That's how the Apostle Paul felt when he wrote this. That's how Major Ballou felt when he wrote his letter. So we just rehearsed several things, but there's more. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. I don't know when your end days are. I do not know when Christ will return. It's whenever God says so. But if you just had a couple weeks left, like 97 days, then you might find these scriptures disturbing. 1 Timothy 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. I mean, this is a who's who's list of deplorable. Unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. You want a long list of what not to be like or what not to be around? Just read that and think about it for a little while. Paul lists 19 characteristics of what people will be like in the end. The end days right before the end time, the end days since Paul, and your end days whenever that is. Lovers of their own selves, selfish, overly interested in, this, in themselves, their needs, their wants. It's like watching the Kardashians run wild. 
covetous. I'm, I'm going to go through the list, so seal yourself. Covetous, lovers of money for material things, power and influence. Bruno Mars has a song about that. I want to be a billionaire. So bad. Buy all the things I never had. Everybody loves that song. <laughs> Boasters, valuing themselves beyond all others. That would be every single rap song ever written. I would know because I know most of them. It from the 80s, that is. <laughs> Proud, airy, disdainful, making a big outward showing, but inside nothing. Have you ever seen Ronaldo score a goal? Right? Blasphemers, those who speak contemptuously of God, mocking, scorning. Go to a college campus or a faculty dining room and try to talk about being a Christian. See what you'll get in response. Disobedient to parents, headstrong children that parents cannot persuade or teach, tons of foul language on PlayStation, killing people endlessly, respawning endlessly, endless selfies and filters, but clean your room, set your table, do your homework, won't listen, won't grow up. Unthankful, concerned only with their rights and what they believe to be yours. I want to check in early and I want to check out late. Unholy, <laughs> reveling in evil, promoting evil. Harry Potter is an actual witch. Sorry to update you, right? The Rock kills 60 people a movie. Dave Chappelle's language and subject matter is horrific, but everybody thinks it's so funny and it's so good. Without natural affection a silent conscience to evil, killed the Jews from the mountains to the sea, bomb Gaza, good. They're underneath the, with the hospital. Now we know where to bomb. Just get them. You've heard that, I'm sure. Truce breakers, liar, liar, liar. You didn't read the small print in my net worth statement. It says all the data above is fake, and so it can't be used for anything. What's wrong? False accusers, slandering, striving, Incontinent, slaves to lust and passion. The porn websites are almost the highest rated in every country in the world. Fierce, not gentle, impetuous, hardened. No reason for any affection. Despisers of those that are good. They hate things that are good. Marriage, monogamy, birth, boo. Traitors, backstabbers, feigning friendship for personal gain, heady, rash, unthinking, shoot first, ask questions later, pop off in every car accident, high-minded, we are elite, they are deplorables, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, a form of godliness. Go to church on Sunday, get drunk and fight everybody at the soccer game later that night or the football game, right? You've seen it. That is our world today. That is the world you live in. That is what is all around you. That is what nearly every single person is like. Only before the flood was it worse, when every single person's thought was evil continually. But we are getting there as quick as we can. From all such things, we are told, turn away. And if you look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, you could be further sobered. 
But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It never will get better. It will only get worse. So what should we do? Verse 14. But continue in the things that you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you learned them. Clark's commentary says, No man, however well instructed in such things of God, whether you went to Ambassador College or whether you're going to FI, is out of the reach of temptation, apostasy, and final ruin. Hence the necessity of watching unto prayer, depending upon God, continuing in the faith, and persevering unto the end. I'll say it another way. Stir up the spirit of God that is in you and cling to the truth that has been revealed to us by living and practicing it every day, like we just heard. But know that living this way and obeying the scripture is not going to be easy. The scripture tells us that these 19 characteristics will grow worse and worse. It won't be pleasant for them because sin brings bad things, but it's not going to be pleasant for you either, even when you follow God's way. What does it say in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12? Go back up. Verse 12. Yea, and all who live godly lives in Jesus Christ shall suffer persecution. Why? Because as these verses tell us, as people become more and more evil, they will grow to hate the opposite, which is good, more and more. They will to grow to despise and hate good and those who practice good, commensurate with their descent into evil. And I offer as a proof for you everything that you see around you. Why is the LGBT lobby so quick to punish anyone who will not support their every desire? Why is there such passion on the side of those who demand a woman's right to abortion? Why do so many people who have left the faith and are now mainstream or agnostic or atheist or nothing spend so much time trying to tear down those who have remained in the faith? Why? Because they are trying to convince themselves that they are right. Thou doth protest and protest too much, I say. Deep down inside, there is something in the conscience of all people that won't let them rest until they've succeeded in smashing that last glowing ember of truth, that opposition to their stance and their ways and their thinkings. People who are living the truth and embracing God's way of life are standing in the way of totally eliminating the voices of their consciences. It may only be a whisper, but they cannot rest until the conscience goes silent. Really, they're just unwittingly obeying their master, the great deceiver, who's doing the same thing himself. Our adversary's goal is to silence the conscience of the spirit that is in all men so that he can bring the world to total destruction. And so what about you? You've been called. You've been given the truth. You have the Holy Spirit. And you are in your last days. Whether you have years, or 97 days, or a few hours, what will you do? 
Major Selden Ballou wrote a letter about loving his family and being devoted to a cause and wishing he had done both of those more. Paul concludes with this. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Some of the final words of a dying man of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Brethren, focus your attention on what really matters.